you want to take your Bible with me for a few minutes tonight, we're going to be starting this series that I introduced to you last week called This I Believe. And because of our time, we only have about 25 minutes. I'm not going to get overly deep in this particular doctrine that we're talking about, but I want to begin, and then after our family supper, I'll come back to it, and we will complete it. Uh, we're looking at the inspiration of Scripture over these coming weeks involving all of our pastoral staff. We'll be talking about the doctrines of the faith. We'll be talking about some of the doctrines that are core doctrines, uh, of which if you do not affirm them, you are not orthodox. You're not an orthodox Christian. Uh, others that are secondary doctrines where churches might disagree, but we want you to understand what defines us what we believe that defines us. And we'll be doing this to the first of summer, probably through summer. It really depends on how many of these I want to cover and how many of the other men want to be a part of. And so I'm excited about that. Uh, the very next ones, after we finish the one I'm doing tonight, is going to come from Jeremy. He's going to be talking about the Trinity and what the Scripture has to teach us about the Trinity. But my instruction tonight, my responsibility tonight, is to come and to introduce you to this whole matter of the inspiration of Scripture. And I want you to follow along, if you will, uh, beginning in verse 14. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known and here's a great phrase, the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're going to talk this Sunday evening and the one after our family dinner about this matter of the scriptures being divinely inspired. If you don't have a copy of our doctrinal statement, I'm going to put up for you what is our belief about the Holy Scriptures. And we're going to leave it up there for you so that you can just sort of look at it and remember it and try to go through some of these things with me. We believe the Holy Scriptures to be the verbally inspired word of God, the final authority for faith and life, inerrant in the original writings, infallible, and God-breathed. And there's some words in that that I want you to take note of. The first one is the word scriptures, the holy scriptures. I want you to see the words verbally inspired. I want you to see the word authority. And I want you to see the word inerrant. And I want you to see the word infallible. Those are very important words in that definition of what we believe about the Scripture itself. We believe that the Scripture is a verbally inspired word of God. In other words, what you hold in your hand is the authoritative word from the Almighty. It is what He wants us to know. You can go outside and you can look at creation and Generally, in creation, you can see the attributes of God, you can see the character of God, you can see the work of God, but specifically in the Scriptures, in the special revelation of the Scripture, 
We are given insight that we could not have had any other way except that God gave us his holy word. That book you hold in your hands is under attack, whether you know it or not. It is constantly under attack. It is never, there has never been a time when it hasn't been under attack, but as we will see in this two-part lesson, that it is under attack in ways today that many people just don't, simply don't realize. Let's do some definitions of terms if we can do that. We're going to talk, first of all, about what we mean when we say Scripture. We believe the Holy Scriptures. What do we mean? Well, it takes us back to one of the five solas of the Reformation. Do you remember those five solas? Uh, sola Scriptura, Solus Christus, Sola Fida, Sola Gratia, and Soli Deo Gloria. Those five solas define, if you will, that Reformation period. But that very first one is sola scriptura. Each of those means scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, to the glory of God alone. But we're thinking about that first one, sola scriptura. When we talk about the scriptures, it comes from a, a Latin word, scriptura, comes from a Latin word that means writings. And it refers to the sacred texts and specifically to the Bible as the written word of God. In other words, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, everything from the first verse to the last verse of this book is the Word of God. I tell somebody, sometimes I say to people to shock them, I don't believe everything that's in my Bible. And they look at me and they say, what, have you changed in your doctrine? No, it's just that I write in my Bible and, and there are concordances in my Bible and there's an introduction in my Bible, but I believe everything from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. That is the Scripture. I, I like the way he referred to it here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Did you notice in verse 15 he called it the Holy Scriptures? Uh, this book is a holy book. Secondly, you want to talk about the word inspiration. You see that word, inspired word of God. Theopneustos, it's a Greek word that's a compound word. It means God breathed. In other words, the book we hold in our hand didn't come by the will of man. It came because God gave us his word. He used men to write it, but he worked through those men so that every word that they wrote was exactly what he wanted written. So that what we have in our hands is a God-breathed book. It is the ultimate source of the Scriptures. That is, the Bible is the ultimate source of the Word of God, the written Word of God to us. Uh, the process is what we call inspired. The, the Scriptures were inspired, but we've got to stop for a moment and make sure we understand. You hear a musician sometimes say, well, I was inspired to write a song. Or, you know, some guy that's in love with a gal and says, I was inspired to write her a poem. Or I was inspired to this. Uh, when I stood at the plate and the pitch was coming at me, I just felt an inspiration to swing at that exact moment to hit it out of the park. And we use inspiration in a, in a very light way. When I talk about inspiration, I want you to understand, I'm talking about the origin from which the words that we have in our Bible come. They come from the Almighty God through the human instrumentation of the authors 
so that they're written on the page of Scripture. And you need to understand something specific. The words that are written on your, on, in the Bible, in those original texts, those words themselves are inspired. That's a big difference. Those words themselves are, are inspired. You're going to learn a little bit if we get to it in 2 Peter chapter 1 that the men spoke of all they were carried along. It's a word that means that they caught the breeze. God moved them along like you do a ship that has sails. God picked them up and carried them along. He used their personalities. He used their experiences. He used their research. But what was inspired was what they wrote down in those original manuscripts of which we have copies today and which we have translations of those copies. That's the doctrine of inspiration. In other words, there weren't uh, 40 or so men that sat down and just decided to write out a history book about all that had happened to the nation of Israel and how Jesus came into the world and give us a little bit of history and a little bit of understanding about the early churches. And it's just all a big history book. It is a history book. It's far, far more than a history book. This is the living, as Hebrews 4 says, this is the living word of God. I want you to think about the word inerrancy. Uh, inerrancy. It is without error. Inerrant in the original writings. Now, we don't have those original writings. We have copies upon copies upon copies. Of the New Testament, we have some 6,000 or so copies. Not all of them are entire manuscripts. Some of them are only por por uh, partial manuscripts, but we have copies upon copies of, of the manuscripts. Beyond that, especially from the New Testament, we have all of the church fathers and all the sermons. I, I'm told by the scholars that if you go back and read through the writings of uh, the ancient church fathers, that you can put back together the entire New Testament where they've preached and they quoted scripture. You can come back and you can put it all together. Uh, you have translations that have been made in many different languages over a long period of time. But you've got to understand, in the original manuscripts, it is inerrant. What do we mean by, by inerrant? It is without fault or error in all that it teaches. It is inerrant. Whatever it says is true. Whether that's a matter of history or that's a matter of science or a matter of faith, it's all true. It's inerrant. You can bank on it. Uh, matter of fact, it's, it's, it's more certain than, than the bank. <laughs> it is inerrant in matters of history, science, and faith. Inerrancy, understand, allows for literary devices such as metaphor, met, metaphors and hyperbole, rounded off numbers and colloquial expressions, but what was originally written and given to us and has been copied again and again is inerrant. It is without error. Can we just get that right? It is as well infallible in our definition. It says infallible and God breathed. That's the position that the Bible cannot err or make mistakes and that it is completely trustworthy. As the Christian church has traditionally taught, this doctrine is based on the perfection of the divine author who cannot speak error. And so every word of the Bible is inspired. Every word is infallible as given in his original manuscripts. And every word is infallible, is inerrant and infallible. 
let's talk about another word that's not in our definition up there, but I want to make sure you understand. It's the word autographs. That's not what you have in the front of your Bible. Or that's not what you have from a famous football player or baseball player. The autographs are the original texts of the Bible, the original text of the biblical books. They call them autographs, that which was produced by God through human, uh, through human instrumentation so that what was written was the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God. Those documents are called autographs. So if I were to talk to you about those original documents, for that matter, we could talk about even the 6,000 or so documents of the New Testament that we have. We, we would call those autographs. But that brings me to talk about another word that's not in our definition, but it's very important, and that's canon. That's not something you shoot. That's not something that uh, you go with us to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and go up on uh, Signal Mountain, and you go out and see some of those uh, Civil War cannons. That's not the kind of canon we're talking about. When we talk about the canon, we're talking about the authoritative list of inspired biblical books. Those books that are inspired, infallible, and inerrant. Those that are the original autographs from which we have translations that we hold in our hands. Those books, all 66 of them, make up what is called the canon of the Scripture. In other words, God's not writing any new texts. Everything that we need to have, everything that's necessary for us to know, everything that's important is given to us in the 66 books of the Bible that we hold in our hands. And let me just clear up something. <clears throat> the authoritative list of inspired books came about within a very short time, the New Testament came about within a very short time after Jesus' death. Within the first century, all of those books were written. Probably the Gospel of John was the last one written. And they're, they're affirmed by evaluating the, the fact that an apostle is one who wrote it, had received it, or had taught the things that are in the book. But ultimately, the canon, if you will, is self-authenticating. Because I hear this all the time. Well, you didn't even know what the Bible was, especially the New Testament. You didn't even know what the New Testament was until uh, the Council of Nicaea in the 300s A.D. Oh, yes, we did. Uh, the books of the Bible were already, they were self-authenticating. Uh, they were already being read. Uh, those books that weren't the inspired and errant infallible word of God, the church was already shedding and putting aside, and they were bringing it down to these 66 books that we hold in our hand, the canon, so that when you have your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you have the entirety of what God has given by inspiration. I want to say another word that's not in our definition, and that's necessity, the necessity of the Word of God. It refers to mankind's need for God's special revelation in the Scripture in order to obtain knowledge of the gospel and the plan of salvation. It can't be learned any other way. This is an inspired, infallible book. I've spoken to you about this in the past. Somebody brought it up to me recently, but we wonder why Men and women who aren't believers in Jesus open the Bible and they cannot understand what it says because it says these things have to be spiritually discerned. If you don't have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you don't have the interpreter of the book that you hold in your hand. You can understand aspects of it and parts of it, but the reality is it's the Holy Spirit who brings us to his word and opens his word and teaches us his word. 
That's, that's why when you pick up your Bible, uh, as many times as you can, as much as you think of it, before you read your Bible, say, st- stop and ask God to guide you into his word. It's the reason I pray before many services and ask, God, guide us today into your word. Help us to understand it. I might not be able to make it clear, but the Holy Spirit of God has no problem making it understandable and applicable to our lives. Amen? It's necessary. This book is necessary. It's necessary for us to know about salvation. It's it's necessary for us to know about the Jewish people, how they came about, how they became the people of God, how they delivered to us the the Messiah, how the Messiah gave his life on the cross of Calvary, how the gospel was preached after his resurrection and ascension, how the church came into being on the day of Pentecost, how churches were functioning in the first century. All of that is necessary. All of it is essential. You say, I don't need all of the Bible. You need every page of the Bible. I know people today who say, well, you don't really need the Old Testament. Just stay in the New. (laughs) That's that's sort of like saying uh, you didn't really need to be a child first. You, You needed to just be an adult immediately. It's sort of stupid, you know. How do you become an adult? Well, you get to be a teenager, which is an awkward period of life. And then I went through, through elementary school, and then I went through that toddler stage, and, you know, I was born from my mother's womb. I mean, you got, these, you got these, this process. The, the New Testament, you don't understand the New Testament if you don't go back and try to grasp the big picture of what's going on. And then the last word that I want to make sure we understand, are you all with me? Scripture, inspiration, inerrancy. Uh, infallibility, autographs, canon, necessity. It's necessary uh, to the life of the believer. He says, sincerely desire, or he says to desire the sincere milk of the, of the word, the necessity of it. But then there's the word sufficiency. And I might park here for a moment. Sufficiency. That means that in this book, Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, All that you need to know and believe regarding salvation and what pleases God is found in the Bible. So maybe I just should park here just for a moment. All that is needed to know, uh, that we need to know and believe regarding salvation and what pleases God, it's found in this book. Um, This is where the, the rubber meets the road. So when churches take the Bible and they take a verse or two out of it and they build some kind of a message that's going to be delivered and then they lay their Bible aside and they give a nice uh, wonderful platitude, a nice uh, little devotional talk, uh, they give a, a nice little uh, you know, ditty that makes people feel good when they get through and everybody goes home happy and uh, we think everybody ought to have a church like that where you hear that kind of speaking Absolutely not. You understand that your life will never be what God wants it to be and what it ought to be if you don't have the Word of God coursing through you at all times, learning it, growing in it, understanding it, reading it, hearing it preached, hearing it taught, applying it to your life, studying it. You need the Word of God, and it is sufficient. It is sufficient. Take your Bible with me for a moment and turn back... uh, to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. 
verses 2 and 3. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things, not some, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. How do you know God more fully? You know him through his word, right? And what has he given us in his word? Everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. You say, well, the Bible is just not enough for me. The Bible is all you need. I understand. I'm going I'm to make some pretty bold statements here, just, and I'll probably get myself in trouble. But that's okay. Jeremy's coming to speak later, so he'll clean, he'll clean it all up. Um, I'm, I'm all about uh, seminars and uh, all about video studies and all about uh, you know, various uh, guest speakers that talk on a given topic. That's, that's all well and good. They have their place. They have their place. I don't in any means uh, want to denigrate that, that they don't have their place. But I'm going to tell you something. If you didn't have any of those things, if you just studied your Bible and learned what it had to say and let it inform your life, you would have everything you need for life and godliness. Everything you need for your marriage, everything you need for raising your children, everything you need for running a church, everything you need for conducting business in the world in which we live, everything you need for carrying out your life on a daily basis, everything you need is in this book. Everything you need for life and godliness is in this book. You say, how am I going to raise my children if I don't get five points in a poem at the end that teaches me five ways to raise my kids or five ways to have a better marriage or ten ways to make money or Hey, look, that's the problem in our church, churches today. We've substituted every imaginable thing for the simple understanding and study of the Word of God. Y'all still with me? We've substituted every imaginable thing for, for the simple study of the Word of God. Do we need music? Absolutely we need music. Do we need uh, specialty classes for parenting and specialty classes for marriage. Those are wonderful things that make uh, those aspects practical to life. But why do we want you to read your Bible every day? Why do we want you to be in church services? Why do people need to be here Sunday morning and Sunday night? Why do they need to be in a life group on a weekly basis? Why do they need to have their Bibles with them? Why isn't it enough to simply have it electronically. Why do you say we ought to have something printed that we hold in our hands? Because that book you hold in your hand is sufficient for life and godliness. And if you don't know it, then you don't know all that it has for you for life and godliness. Uh, we raise our children on this book. We uh, nurture our marriage on this book. Uh, we live our lives on this book. We conduct our business according to this book. We look at science, the creation of the world according to this book. Everything about life we look at through the, through the lens of the word of the living God because it is completely sufficient. Get the words. All things 
that pertain to life and godliness. It is sufficient, and therein is, the, is one of the central attacks. I'm not going to get to the attacks tonight. That'll come in two weeks. But, but therein comes the, the, one of the attacks on the Bible. It's just not enough. Do you understand that that's uh, what the cultists say? We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. We, we, you know, the Bible's not enough. We've got to have more. So Joseph Smith in New York uh, has a vision and has these plates delivered to him, and he now has the Book of Mormon to go along with his Bible. Or you get uh, the copy of uh, the Scriptures from the Jehovah's Witnesses, and you look at it, and you recognize they have mistranslated and, uh, and corrupted the Word of God. Uh, you, you look at uh, all of these different religious beliefs, many of them, they have their own separate book in addition to. I don't, I don't know if you know this or not, we don't have any books in addition to these 66 books. This is the word of the living God. Now, I want to show you something, and I want to take you back to the book of Genesis for a moment. And I want to show you something, and I'm going to finish on this. Because I don't want to get into the attacks on the Bible yet. Just I'm going to save that for the second part of this matter of inspiration. And since I told the guys they only got one night, I guess I'm going to have to give them two nights on their topic. I want you to see that from the very beginning of time, that what God has been, uh, what, uh, what uh, uh, Satan has been trying to do is to undermine the Word of God from the very beginning of time. If, if you let somebody shake your confidence in this book, your foundation is, is destroyed. When you stop taking this book as the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of the living God, you're now standing on something that's like shifting sand. And it didn't begin with us. It began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. You know the story. That God created Adam and Eve, created Adam from the dust of the earth, the dirt, created Eve from a rib. And he brought them together into this beautiful garden that he had given to them. And he said, of all the trees, I mean, can you imagine how many trees there must have been? Can you imagine how beautiful those trees must have been? We're about to see spring coming out. Our, uh, what are those flowers in our front yard? Our daffodils are starting to, to, to bloom. And I know that not far behind are going to be all the other pretty flowers. Now, we don't have that many in our yard, but our neighbors do. <laughs> all those pretty flowers are about to start blooming with all of, those, all of those beautiful colors. We're about to start looking at them. Can you imagine how beautiful Eden must have been? Can you imagine it? And he said, you can eat of any tree in this garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Satan knows what I've got to do is I've got to undermine the word of God. From the very beginning, this has been going on. I've got to undermine the word of God. Notice beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said? Well, what, how does he start? He starts by doubting the word of God. Is it really true? Can you really depend on what God has said? Has he really said this? And he plants doubt in the minds of people. 
They allow the doubt to be planted in their minds sometimes. But he causes her to ask that question, to begin questioning, well, did God really say that or not? Maybe, maybe that's not true. Maybe I don't have to follow what he said. <coughs> Satan doubted. He doubted the word of God. He planted that doubt in Eve's mind. But don't you see, secondly, he, then he distorts the word of God. He goes on at the end of verse 3, or excuse me, verse 1. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it. And here comes the additions. Nor shall you touch it lest you die. Isn't that interesting? Satan creates the question in her mind and now she's not just taking God at his word, she's adding to his word. And there are millions of people that have added to the word of God. Let me, let me and I'll, I'll get to this maybe in a little, in, in a next week or two weeks, these attacks on the Bible. Can, can I just encourage you to do something? It, it would be wise for you to stop saying, well, the Lord told me. So how did the Lord tell you? If you say scripture, that's a right answer. But the Lord told me. Do you realize that that's a stiff, that's a stiff arm? That's, you can't question what I'm about to do because God told me and you don't have any right to question God. Do you realize that, that people do all kinds of really crazy things in the name of God? because they were moved emotionally for some reason or they had some voice speaking in their head. And all of that of the charismatic movement where they're getting new revelation and you've got to have somebody speaking in tongues and you've got to have, and it, which, which they rarely ever do, if they ever do, have an interpreter that interprets what was being said by the person speaking in tongues. All this new supposed revelation, God's got something new to tell you. I got good news for you. Everything God wants you to know, he's put in his word. Read it. Study it. He doubted the word of God. Then the word of God was distorted. But then I want you to notice, then he denies the word of God. He just outright denies it. Verse 4, then the serpent said to, to the woman, you will not surely die. Is that a lie? That's an absolute lie. Well, I'm going to give up my Bible. I'm going to give up what it says. I'm not going to take it with me anymore. I'm not going to believe what it says. I'm, I don't believe those things. That's too juvenile for, for me. Uh, there, there are too many mistakes in the Bible. By the way, <laughs> I won't go there yet. I'm, I'm going to leave that for later. Uh, I'm going to give up my Bible. I, can't, I don't know if I can trust it anymore because the scientists say we had to have evolved over billions of years when God says we were created uh, in a matter of uh, six days with a seventh day of rest. Do you realize who's behind that? Satan doubted the word of God, distorted it, and then he outright denied it. He outright denied it. And that's where we are today in modern American Christianity. We don't look at the Bible as the holy scriptures, verbally inspired 
the final authority, the final authority of faith in life, inerrant, infallible, God-breathed, we treat it like it's just another book on the shelves of our bookcases rather than it is the holy word of the living God. Go back to 2 Timothy for a moment. You didn't pay for this. I'm just going to give it to you. Some of you are thinking, where, where did I pay for any of this? <clears throat> I want you to see what happens with the Word of God. Listen to what he says, verse 15. And that from childhood you have known from childhood. When do we start teaching the Scriptures? To our children. From childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. Notice how he calls them. Holy Scriptures, which are able to do what? Make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Do you realize when you start tampering with the Word of God and doubting the Word of God and distorting the Word of God and denying the Word of God that you are tampering with the very book that brings salvation to the hearts of men and women? This is a living book. This book is the word of the living God. Every word of this book is true. You can build your life on this book, and it'll be built on the the solid rock and not the shifting sand. We can't deny or distort or doubt the word of God. When we do that, we find ourselves in dangerous territory. Having said that, Isn't it interesting? With Eve, she was doubting, she was distorting, she was being told to deny the word of God. But isn't it interesting in the New Testament when you find Jesus in in Matthew chapter 4, he goes out uh, fasting out into the wilderness for 40 days and Satan comes to him. Isn't it interesting how Jesus handled the word of God differently than Satan or Eve handled the word of God? Jesus never questioned the authority of the Word of God. Jesus never questioned the power of the Word of God or the sufficiency of the Word of God. Never questioned it. When Satan came and gave him the first temptation, what did he quote in response? The Word of God. When he came with the second temptation, what did he quote? The Word of God. And when he came with the third temptation, what did he quote? He quoted the Word of God. And what do we do in the world in which we live when we're seeking to build our lives in a fashion that brings glory to God? We quote the word of God. This book is the final authority. The final authority. So let me just tell you, Robert's rules of order are not the final authority. Those are necessary rules for the conducting of a congregational church where everybody has a part to be able to vote on things that we're doing at various times that we're doing them. But Robert's rules of order do not supplant the word of the living God. Do you get what I'm saying? The book you hold in your hands is so vitally important. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God 
and is, hear the word, profitable. Is there any part of God's word that isn't profitable? You say, Pastor, it has to be in the Chronicles where they have that long list, those long lists of names. I understand. I struggle every time I get there. I turn on Alexander Scorby. Let him read it to me. I can't pronounce most of those names like you can't pronounce most of those names. But all of those names are important for the delivery of the Messiah through the Jewish people so that we have a Savior. Every one of those names are valuable. This book is profitable. It's profitable, he says, for doctrine. That's the practice of teaching, what I'm doing tonight, what all of our pastors are going to be doing over the coming weeks. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. Nobody likes reproof. I don't like it either, but all of us have to have it for correction. None of us likes correction, but correction is necessary that the man of God, the people of God, may be complete. You want to be complete? Go get the latest psychologist and let the latest psychologist tell you how to run your marriage. Go find the latest child-rearing guru and let the latest child-rearing guru tell you how to run, how to run your family, how to, how to raise your children. You, you can do that and you might learn some, you know, some valuable practical principles that would be helpful to you. But if you're neglecting the Word of God, you're neglecting the most important book in rearing your children. The most important book in your life. I'm thankful that I have in my hands a book that I trust. You might have the ESV. You might have the NASB. I use the New King James Version. You say, why do you do that? Because it's my friend. I've used it a long, long time. And I know where things are on the page. <laughs> and I like, the, I like the slightly more formal feel to it than some of you like. But I don't know what translation you're carrying, but I'm telling you what you're carrying in your hands is a powerful, powerful book from God. You want to know what to do about a problem you got? Before you go see the counselor, uh, a lot of marriage problems would be taken care of if the two people just obeyed the word of God. A lot of child-rearing problems would take care of themselves if the parents just obeyed the word of God. A lot of people would find the blessings of God in their lives if they would just obey the word of God. And don't let the world around you say, well, you're just antiquated. That book's 2,000 plus years old. <laughs> that 2,000 plus year old book's more than 2,000, by the way. The Old Testament's more than 2,000. That book that you hold in your hand is the book of life. Don't neglect it.